We'll check it out, y'all. We got what you need. We're all living in apartments, condos, vans. Well, dude, even you can have a studio. A studio in a box. Yes, we can help you with that right here at Blind Knowledge. We work on your budget, and we figure out your measurements. We'll get you the best sound for the best price. Let me know, 877-237-1143 or at blindknowledge.com. Yep. Welcome back to another episode of Paranormal Than Normal. I'm your host, as always, Jeremy. Here to try to bring a little normal into this world. Does it ever happen? Yeah, no. We try, but it never happens. And as always, I am joined by a guest to help me try to do this. And, well, we, we will fail on our mission, as always, but we have fun in the way, and that's all that matters. My guest today is John Brasser Jr., who is a podcaster as well as an author he is the host of the Kitchen Table Historian podcast, which I didn't actually realize was a podcast until today. And I'm going to have to check that out because that sounds pretty interesting, actually, personally. <laughs> I can't wait to talk about that later. But that name alone is just brilliant. Brilliant. But uh, first things first, how are you doing tonight, John? I'm doing good. I'm doing good. Well, glad to hear it. My life's been a little hectic lately with guest canceling and all that, but um and uh listeners if you're listening to if you're watching this live i apologize for the lack of episodes lately i switched host websites for my podcast and it's been causing some issues but um don't worry episodes will be releasing soon i have two sitting there waiting to be released they haven't released because i don't know why but good enough but let's start this interview off right with the same way we start every interview and that is john what got you into the paranormal spiritual world I've always had an interest in it. I've always had kind of a weird bend, I suppose you could say. I've been a sucker for a good ghost story since I was a kid, and I had indulgent parents, and it just grew from there. Well, uh, that's the best way to do it. I mean, I was the same way. and I was kind of the same way. I just always was interested in it. Never had any reason to be interested in it. was just always interested in it, and that's just the way it went. But... What experiences did you have, though, that made you interested in it? That's what I'm kind of curious about. I've always just been a natural believer. I've never, sounds like there should be a song with that, but I've always had an interest in it. I never really had any experiences. I did when I got older, but when I was a young man and in childhood, never really had anything, can't think anything now. But later on, definitely. But by that point, I already had an established belief and and already knew a lot about it. So I just kind of kept it up and filed it away. Like, oh, I finally have my own stories. Exactly. I mean, that's just, that's what I feel as well. That you've always had, like, I, I never had any experiences at all. But I mean, I've, I live in a haunted house and I've never seen anything. But people, right. who, have been in my, people who have been in my house have seen things. Like, that's the way it goes. So, I don't know. It's a mysterious thing, this paranormal world we live in. A very mysterious thing. And I guess first thing I want to ask is when, well, let's talk about your author career a little bit because when did you realize that you wanted to write about this type of stuff? I kind of fell into it. I actually started writing 
I'm more of a true crime author than anything else, but I write a lot about ghost stuff. Uh, my first real foray into it outside of the podcast was, uh, a associate of mine approached me and he had already written a book about regional history, uh, ghost stories in particular. And he wanted to do a follow-up book to it. And he, his co-author for that book fell through and he had just gotten a new job and things were backing up. And he's like, my God, I'm not going to meet my deadline. So he had interviewed me for his first book. And so we had at least a passing acquaintance. And so he got a hold of me and asked me if I would be willing to co-author this second book with him. And I said, sure, because writing a ghost book sounded like fun. And that was my first kind of official major foray into it in the written word. Uh, like I said, outside of the podcast, beyond that, I never really wrote anything. And then I kind of started, uh, I started my own presentation series regionally, and that's actually blown up and done really well for me. So I get to go on and, you know, I tell ghost stories to people in person now. Nice. Nice. That's, that's what, <laughs> that's the best way to do it. And uh, well, why don't you tell us about your, Books. I believe. I believe the first one you wrote was. I mean, actually, it's funny because you, all your books are about Iowa, if I'm not mistaken, right? Yes. You know, it's funny. I started on a podcast called Bracket Bastards, and four of the or five of the people that were on in the beginning are all from Iowa. <laughs> no kidding. The the Pella Montezuma area. Oh, okay. Yeah, I'm familiar with it. Yeah. So. It's it's funny you wrote your books about Iowa because that's awesome. I mean, I can't wait to tell them about this because they're going to be like, really? <laughs> like, it's, <laughs> it's going to be a whole thing. But so I'm guessing you're from Iowa originally? Yes. Born and raised in eastern Iowa. Well, there you go. And I, so you, were, you basically were just writing about the things around you, which is great. I know a, another author I interviewed on my show twice who does New Jersey. She writes oh. books about, about uh, Eleanor Wagner. I don't know if you're familiar with her. But vaguely, yeah, she writes. She's written three or four books about haunted New Jersey. So, oh wow, okay, yeah. So, I mean, it's kind of the same idea. Like, I'm gonna write these books about where I'm from to respect the history of my state, right? Which I, I respect that 100. percent It's an amazing thing to do. I mean, I live in Massachusetts. There's a lot I could write about, but just don't have the time to put it all together with working a full time job and everything else. <laughs> oh, sure, I understand that for sure. Which, speaking of that, how long does it take you to write a book? Because I've, I've interviewed a lot of authors. They all have different answers. Uh, it depends on the book. Uh, generally about a year, uh, sometimes less. Uh, two of my books have had co-authors. So those books, slightly shorter time frame, six, seven months maybe. I don't, my very first book, I don't remember exactly how long it took us to write. Uh, the last one, which had a co-author, that took about... I think it took us about six, seven months, maybe a little longer. And we kind of drew out some of that because he got busy. I got busy. We had other projects. We had other things going on. And so we had the time. So we extended it a little bit, but we got it in well under the deadline. Uh, the two books that I'm writing by myself uh, or that I've written by myself, rather, uh, the first one that's been published, the second one will be published next year. Uh, the first one took me about eight, nine months because I'm doing it on my own and trying to figure things out. It was kind of a chaotic time in my life. And so I had to figure things out as I went. This next one, actually, it didn't take me as long as I thought it would. But, you know, I've been doing the podcast. I have a written uh, word segment of my podcast. So, I mean, I you kind of find your writing groove. And after a while, you're able to to hit a little smoother and a little faster. Yeah, which, I mean, you wrote your first book, Cemeteries of Iowa, and is it just about the cemetery? I mean, of course, I haven't had time to read it myself. I apologize, but if I ever read every book a person wrote my podcast, I would literally, <laughs> spend all day, I would literally spend all day every day reading, and I would never get anything else done. So <laughs> it's it's illogical to think that's possible even, but I mean, uh, someday. They're, they're all sitting on a list on my computer waiting for the day I'm retired, and I can sit there and read and read. I have really a lot a good of day. I actually have a lot of those books already. A lot of podcasters have either sent them to me or um, just given me them for like, you know, a couple bucks, or whatever, just to right. make, so make something off them because they want me to have them anyway to kind of show my collection one day. But 
So, uh, do you write about the cemeteries that are haunted or just the cemeteries in general? So, it is the worst titled book ever. <laughs> so, we I co-authored it with my dad. And I didn't, I hadn't even really started writing as a side gig or anything yet. Uh, I had a, I had a degree in history. I had done, I was working in another field because quite frankly, I could make a hell of a lot more money doing it. And so he approached me and we had talked about writing a book for years and years and years. And he finally told me, well, I approached a, uh, I approached a publisher and they said, yeah, they're interested. Let's go ahead and do this. And so our idea was, was uh, it was about the people in the cemeteries. And so it was the, uh, so it was about their lives and about what they did. And we had people that uh, we had murderers and we had murder victims and suicides and we had famous people and businessmen and whatever else, whatever you can imagine. We had compiled this collection of interesting people so it was a great uh i always call it a great bathroom book but the title just kind of came and i i thought i was going to be clever with it i thought i was going to be well here it is and it ended up being terrible and because everybody assumed that it was going to be about the cemeteries themselves instead of the people in there so it was a lesson learned i suppose well i mean what do they expect you to call it like those who died in Iowa, like, right. like, like what do they expect you to call it? Like, it probably would have been a better title, to be honest with you. I mean, at least people that, oh, it's about people that died. And not, instead of, well, about the cemeteries, because when I was, I did a couple book signings with it. And of course, I'm a babe in the woods with it. I had absolutely no clue. And so I was, well, you know, I'll go out and I'll do these things. And people are asking me all kinds of questions about the cemeteries. And well, do you know this cemetery? Do you know that cemetery? No, no clue at all. Never heard of it, but thanks for sharing. I mean, yeah, in, in, in every um, in every state, there are cemeteries that no, no, you're never going to hear of because they're small oh, little yeah. cemeteries, and it's just the way it goes. Like they used to build them everywhere. I mean, my my wife lived in a house which that was a Native American burial ground. So I mean, they're they're yeah. everywhere. They're everywhere. Like it's just the way it goes. And actually, okay. You, right. You you could have called your book "I Died in Iowa." That would have been perfect. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know how well it was sold, but love that title. But it, I mean, <laughs> who I knows? Mean, might have been might have been better. I mean, maybe I don't know. But if, if I was in Barnes and Noble, which I have been in Barnes and Noble in like ten years at least. But if I was in one and I walked into, if I was walking down the aisle and I saw one that said "I Died in Iowa," I'd be like, "And why do I want to read you?" <laughs> <laughs> like it just I mean I, I mean cemeteries of Iowa would definitely attract me more due to my paranormal right. like I've always looked for paranormal books so that's just the way I am sure but but all right well let me ask you this when you're researching these cemeteries have you come across any haunting stories uh the cemeteries yeah uh there was a local cemetery called Oakdale and now it's Oakdale Memorial Gardens it started life as Oakdale Cemetery and it had a couple legends and stories about it uh, it's kind of a grab bag on whether you want to believe it or not. Uh, I've heard other stories associated with it that it's allegedly haunted. Uh, there were a couple other stories that came up as we went, but nothing ever too wild and wacky there. I actually didn't come across haunted cemetery stories in my area until a lot later and i ran into a guy and he said that well yeah i've had several experiences out at this there's a cemetery on the west side of what we call the quad cities and it's way out there in, in the middle of nowhere i mean it's right on the edge of town town never quite caught up to it and it's used to be something like a hundred some odd acres and even now it's 80 some odd acres of just woods and dead people and they had these uh you know it's, it has some great stories out there but this guy was telling me all kinds of things yeah we saw this because he grew up down there it's like yeah we saw this and a friend of mine saw this thing it was really interesting i'd never heard of it god 
my neighbor is blasting freaking classic rock and i'm like really in the middle of my podcast i don't know if you can hear it even but <laughs> it happens it happens <laughs> but i mean it's just see haunted cemeteries are big like one of my favorite paranormal shows monsters among us podcast yeah it's, all... it's a good one okay you, you, okay so you know of the greatness oh, yeah. there Derek hayes has actually been on this show uh back oh, when yeah. i first when i first started i managed to grab him the first uh, last summer actually i grabbed him and oh it was wow still very cool to, to my to this day one of my favorite episodes ever because i got to talk to a man i consider a legend in, in his own rights and and who inspired me to start this podcast so i mean that's one thing like but like, you know how he does his uh hometown legends every at the end of every season yeah and a lot of those are haunted cemeteries and that's the great thing because yeah. cemeteries are i mean cemeteries are naturally creepy like by nature like they're supposed to be they're a house they're a housing for the dead for sure. dead corpses and i mean who wouldn't be creeped out by that? I mean, okay, I know right. I know people I know people who wouldn't, but I mean, I did some less than savory things in cemeteries when I was a young man, and I didn't know any better. But right. it's just the, it's just the way it goes. I mean, you grow up down the street from one, and it's a refuge, an escape from your parents' overview. But uh, so, any tales possibly of any cryptids in these cemeteries? Because I, I have heard tales of cryptids like to hang out in cemeteries for some reason. Honestly, I've never, I've heard ghost stories, I've heard legends, but I've never, in our area here, I've never heard of cryptids. I mean, there are cryptid stories, but never in the cemeteries themselves, really. It's more haunted statues and things like that. Now, when you say haunted statues, are you talking like the classic Virgin Mary eyes bleeding blood haunted statue or are you talking just statues that seem like they come alive at certain times well it depends on which cemetery so there's three black angels in iowa the first one is in i take that back there's a blue angel and two black angels so similar legends so the black angel of oakland cemetery we like got a lot of oaks in iowa uh in iowa city iowa the story is it was it was just a grave marker. It is a giant seven foot tall statue made of some kind of metal. I think it was bronze. And it was originally just a metal statue. Well, instead of getting the green verdigree, it actually turned black. And they've later determined it was a chemical process. Well, there's a big legend about it that it turned black because of the sorrow of the person buried there because her kids died young. You know, some typical kind of urban legendy stuff like that. And the story was always, if you touch it, then you'll die within a time frame, 24 hours or whatever. I've actually heard that change. But honestly, I didn't touch it. So, I mean, people can call me out if they want. But at the same time, there's graffiti. If you get right up close to it, there's graffiti all over the statue. So lots of people touched it. So either a lot of people died touching the statue or, you know, it's probably not the legend that people want it to be. The black angel of, then there's a blue angel with a similar story. And it's something about a rose in a case and it disappears. And if it disappears and you'll live, if it's there, then you're, and you see it, then you're going to die. Uh, so similar legends. Now the real intriguing one is on the Western side of the state in council bluffs, Iowa. It's right up along the Nebraska border, fairly large city. And there's a statue that was commissioned and it's, it's a great monument. And the story was, is that uh, there was a very famous Civil War general uh, named Grenville Dodge. And he did a lot of interesting things during the Civil War. And then he helped drive the railroad west and connected at Promontory Point, Utah. And so he had a really cool house. Well, his And he was very wealthy. Well, his wife, when she was dying, had this dream. And it was on three consecutive nights. And this angel came to her with a bowl of water and asked her to drink. And she refused the first two nights. And then the third night she finally did. And then she passed away. Well, her children had, and they were adult children. They had this statue commissioned based off this dream that she was told, slightly prophetic. And the angel 
is sitting there holding a bowl of water and it's this fountain that actually drips down into this pool from the bowl. It's a really cool statue, really neat monument. And it's kind of a ghost story premonition type of legend in and of itself. But people have said there's hauntings about it that the, and I can't remember what they are off the top of my head, but mostly it's known for that legend. Okay. And that's, that's interesting. I mean, that's interesting. Like I love statue legends, like the whole idea of gargoyles and statues, just like, it fascinates me to no end really. It's just like, I just, I don't know. Like, I mean, I watched Gargoyles when I was a kid. So, I mean, <laughs> since then, these things just fascinated me. I, what do you want me to say? Like, it's just when you grow up like that and you see these shows, you're like, what if these statues can come to life at night? And what if they are inhabited by souls or spirits of some kind? Like, it's just, sure. Uh, it's interesting. And it's just, I don't know. I, but in your mind, though, since you wrote this book, you had to think it was full of good stories what makes a good story in your mind i at that time for that particular book i always thought that just the people's lives in and of themselves were interesting a lot of times you hear about these people and in passing you're either learning a little bit about their history and then you go on a house tour oh look at the cool stuff they did with their house what did he do well he was a businessman at this corner and he had this great big building and well that's maybe not so interesting. I mean, it's, it's cool and it's a great house. And I've been through a lot of great houses all over the state and around the country, but really the, the person themselves are the most interesting. Uh, one of the most interesting houses in the area that I'm in, and I always call it one of the best kept secrets of the quad cities is there was a man named William Bettendorf and he was an inventor and a businessman entrepreneur and he invented uh, what was called the, in addition to a bunch of other things, the guy had 120 patents to his name when he died, and he had several more pending. The guy just would not stop. Well, he invented something called the Bettendorf truck, which was a what a railroad car sits on. And in the olden days, it had it, they were all bolted together. So as they're going down the railroad tracks, they would shake apart and then wackiness would ensue and derailments and deaths and mayhem and all kinds of fun stuff. Well, he invented one that was just one solid piece. They were welded together and they lasted forever. It really revolutionized the industry and he made a ton of money as a result. Well, he built this big house or he started building it and him and his second wife went on this on these big excursions to Europe to buy furniture and to they kind of bought craftsmen too. They would have these European craftsmen brought back to uh, it's Bettendorf, Iowa. It's on the East Coast, right along the Mississippi River. And they would bring them back and they would put them up in houses in the town. And because he had the biggest factory in town, he's a multimillionaire. And so they would build workers' houses. And they would stay there and then they would go up to the mansion and they do all this handcrafted stuff, handcrafted wood paneling and carving and whatever you could imagine they did in this house. And it's a beautiful home. Well, that's where the story gets interesting. He never lived in it. When he was 53 years old, he started having stomach pains. He was on vacation. He cut it short. He goes back, sees his doctor. They thought it was indigestion or food poisoning. Well, a couple, three days later, they found out that, no, it wasn't. He actually called in a couple specialists from Chicago, which is the nearest large urban center around here. And this specialist told him, you have a perforated bowel and it's infected and we got to go in and do surgery. So while he was overseeing the construction of this house, he had a bungalow built right across the street. So he was hands-on and it was right above the hill from his factory so he would walk down to work and he'd walk back up and walk over to the mansion and oversee all that and he's living there with his family and i mean he had everything right there well this is 19 1910 and surgery and medicine was not exactly what it is today and so when they said surgery they didn't take him to the local hospital of which there were two major ones at that time they did it right in his kitchen 
They cleared off the kitchen table. They rigged everything up. They had electric lighting. They had wires basically piped in from down at the factory. They had their own electrical plant and they brought it up and they lit it up and they, and his last words were something like, well, don't let the lights go out. And he died on the table. They told him he had a one in hundred chance, but I mean, it's damned if you do damned if you don't. And so then the house changes hands. It goes to his wife, his widow, and she lives in the house for several years. And she was, she inherited a big chunk of money and she never hurt for anything again. And then she passed away in 1924 and it went to her son and her son, he made good money, but he wasn't making that kind of money. She said in 1920, it was costing her a thousand dollars a day to run that house. I mean, could you imagine a day even now? That's an expensive house. So, oh yeah. So they, it changes hands. He was a big Freemason and they were looking for a facility where they could buy and start their own nursing home, nursing care facility for Freemasons and their families. And he said, Hey guys, I got this house. It's a great candidate. And they'd been shopping around the state. And so they came and they looked at it and he told them, I'll give it to you dirt cheap. And it was worth a hundred thousand dollars or more. And he sold it to him for like 25. So, I mean, he made a good chunk of change, but I mean, it was a steal for them. And so it was ratified at their grand convention in 1925. And then they took over the facility. Now, what was cool about it, and then he moved out to California. Now, what happened to him was interesting too, and it's definitely a part of the history. However, what's really neat is that the store, the house was, it was uh, pretty much left alone. They built a 70 bed wing off the main mansion and they used the mansion itself, the downstairs of it, as an administrative ward. They built everything around it and they didn't, they just winterized the upstairs and then they took over the buildings, the carriage house, the stables, whatever else as other buildings and they built whatever else they needed. So the mansion has remained virtually untouched since 1925. And so and when what, you walk in, it's almost what, all original. What town is this in? Go my ass. This is in Bettendorf, Iowa. Bettendorf. They named the town after him. <laughs> now, I love that. Oh, yeah. Now, it was a real interesting guy because his brother took it over and they were really close and they had done a lot of business dealings from the very beginning, but he took it over and people remembered him because, well, William, the guy who started it all died in 1910. And Joseph was an extremely interesting guy and in and of his own right, but he died in 1930. A lot more people remembered him. They remembered his house down the bluff. I mean, it was really cool. So you have this building, which hardly it's private facility. You can't get in there hardly. And you go in there and you have all this history. And it's, I mean, it's like a time capsule. It's an amazing thing. And a lot of people don't know that story. So those are the kind of stories that get me. And then that the mansion's allegedly haunted on top of it makes it even better. Huh, which, I mean, well, what do you mean by that, actually? You just stroke my curiosity a little bit there. <laughs> so people have had experiences in the house. People have heard voices. People have been touched. There was a story of a guy, he was a, he was a, a staff worker, and he had, you have to, he was in the administrative section, which is the mansion itself, and all the lights are off, and he walks in there, and he's, it's got an amazing view of the Mississippi River. It's right up on the river bluff and oversees it. It's great. And it's night and all the lights are on and it's really, really cool. And he decides just kind of take a break and he's looking out the window and he's got the door hanging open and he's standing in the threshold and it's dead quiet and he's just kind of relaxing and somebody pushes it from behind. Now, his first thought in those split second thoughts you have when something like this happens Somebody pushed me, a another staff member, a friend of mine is screwing with me. Now I'm going to tag him back. So he comes back, his hand cocked to deck this dude, and there's nobody there. 
and there's a good 15 feet between the door that goes into the rest of the facility and the door that he was standing at. There's nobody there. There's nobody else there. There's no footsteps. It's dead quiet. There's no footsteps running away. So suffice it to say, he closed and locked the door and got out of there as fast as he could. Yeah, I don't blame him. I mean, <laughs> no. Is, the second I see something in my house, actually, I'm running out the door like Scooby Doo and Shaggy. But <laughs> that's just the way it's going to go. But I mean, it's just, I mean, my wife has seen stuff in the house. Like, just the other mm. night, she saw this 3D shadowy figure. And I mean, she's seen it multiple times now, and it's kind of creepy. I mean, I'm like, oh, yeah. Is that- I'm like, is that a ghost or is that something worse? I can't even sure. show up. I don't really want to put it near to what I think it is, but it could mean, you know, manifestation and all that. But it's just, oh, yeah. It's just creepy. It's creepy. And well, uh, all right. Um, I, well, when did you write your first book? That's why I always like to answer author this question. Like, once the, when did you write your first book? My very first book, the one with my dad, that came out in 2011. My second book was written in 20, 2018, I believe is when it was released. So I wrote it through 2017 into 2018. Okay. that's. I mean, well, yeah, that's about what it takes, according to what you said your work, the way you work is. I mean, I've, I've met authors who have been working on the same book for five, six years, and then like finally oh, they sure. released it. Yeah, you know, it's just, I, I've, interviewed, I've, inter- I've interviewed a lot of authors <laughs> but, but I mean, I, I don't know. It's just when you go to the paranormal side, there's a lot of authors out there who write these books about famous oh, sure. or ghost stories. And I mean, I mean, it's why I grew up on. So, but and it's, I wish I, I almost wish I was, I mean, well, I almost wish I was growing up in this generation. I don't want to, God, no, because this generation, I feel bad for them, but I could imagine growing up in a world of social media, it would be completely foreign to me and on my Childhood's hard enough without social media to make it worse, but fair enough. In my personal opinion, so I, I would have rather grown up in the '90s like I did. But right. it's it's I could. I mean, I almost wish that the par- I wish the paranormal content available today was available when I was a kid. That's always been my right. Because I didn't start seeing this stuff like available constantly until high school, college, and that's sure. when I started seeing it on TV every day on History Channel or Sci-Fi or Discovery, like. But I don't know. It's just, uh, I can't explain it at all. But, well, I want to talk about your podcast, though. Kitchen, I'm going to mess this up probably, but Kitchen Table Historian. Yeah, I got it right. Okay. Kitchen, kitchen Table, I keep wanting to say Kitchen Table History, and I'm like, no. <laughs> but Kitchen Table Historian, which, what do you, what's your podcast based around? Like, what do you guys do on there? Or what do you do on there, I should say? I talk about all kinds of strange and dreadful things that your grandma wouldn't want you to hear. I have a definite historical bent to it. And I talk about a lot of true crime. I talk about paranormal things. I talk about legends, pretty much whatever I feel like. And that's the kind of subject matter that I like and that people seem to come to me for. And I enjoy talking about it. And so that's how it goes. All right, well, let me ask you this. As a native Iowan who's into the paranormal, let's let's talk Iowan cryptids for a minute because I'm kind of – I sure. never have to – because none of my fellow Iowans on my podcast I do already know about this stuff because it's just not that bad. <laughs> right. So, so, I mean, because I know Bigfoot has been seen in Iowa somewhat. Yes. But, I mean, it's not a – I don't think it's a – is it a hot spot like California or no. – New York or Massachusetts, but no, it's nothing like the Pacific Northwest or like the Appalachian Trail or anything like that. Uh, Iowa does have some pretty good stretches of woods, but there's a good chunk of Iowa that's farmland. And yeah. I've always made the case that it would be kind of, I've always wondered how Bigfoot would go through and never be noticed. In certain parts, I could see it, in other parts, not so much. You see, for example, a few years ago, we had a 500-pound black bear come down from Wisconsin, and occasionally they'd been seen here. Well, as the populations go up, they used to, a couple centuries ago, actually be native to this area. Now, it's been a long time, but they tracked that bear on a daily basis and knew pretty much where it was at all the time. And as a matter of fact, it passed about two, three blocks away from my house 
through a big cornfield and there were people out stopping their cars and taking pictures and which I have to question the wisdom of that, but Hey, whatever you want to do. Uh, to me, it's the same kind of thing. Now let's assume that Bigfoot is what everyone assumes a more intelligent creature. Let's say it's moving through at night. Okay. I can see that better, but still, I mean, I have, I have a hard time with certain Bigfoot sightings going through populated areas. However, there are some stories that intrigue me. Uh, first there's the Bigfoot sightings themselves, uh, where people see just a Bigfoot, uh, they see footprints or they actually see the creature itself move through. And in some of those areas, they're pretty remote woods. I've been out there. So I could see that. Uh, then you have things like the Lockridge monster, which took place in Southeast Iowa during the 1970s. And it was a series of sightings by, uh, first a couple local farmers. There were some other people that that had allegedly seen it. And some people said it was a bear walking on its hind legs. Other people said it was more Bigfoot like creature, but they never saw it. Uh, and in the 1970s where cryptid hunting was not as prevalent as it is today, there were still a lot of people coming out there and wanting to go looking for it and ask questions and interview. And it was quite the hotspot for probably a couple, three months in there, which is you know, kind of a big deal for Iowa, especially we're not a state known for Bigfoot. Yeah, not you're, not, you're not, you're not. And I mean, no, it's, it's almost resembling the like Boggy Creek monster incident. Oh, in yeah. Oh, absolutely. Well, our most famous cryptid arguably is the Van Meter visitor. I was going to, I was going to bring that one up next. Cause I, oh yeah. I, I teased my fellow podcasters last year and said I might go down for the Van Meter Visitor Festival and try to get my podcast like featured <laughs> at it, but it never oh, happened. Yeah. I'm, not, I'm not quite, I'm not quite at that level yet, but hopefully in a year or two I can get to that level where they would gladly pay for me to come down and have a booth there or whatnot. But oh we'll, sure, we'll that'd be fun. We'll see. Oh, I mean, oh, the day I get paid to go to all these conventions and whatnot is my heaven. But <laughs> I have not been, to, I have not been to one paranormal convention in my life, and it's. A shame of mine. I don't like to admit, but I haven't been just because financially sure. it just ne it never worked out work wise either. And yeah. I need a reason to go. If they want to pay me to come and do pockets of some life <laughs> in the event, then that's a whole another story. Manifest manifestation, putting it out there, let it happen. But it's just, I mean, the Van Meter Visitor, though, because that kind of touches on one of my favorite cryptic topics of all time living dinosaurs, which right. that's a lot of people. I mean, I've seen pictures of what they think it was. It looked like a pterodactyl. Right. It was the Van Meter visitor. It's almost defies explanation. It's see, and this is entering in that kind of gray area of paleontology with dinosaurs and whatever else, where what exactly did they fully look like? What were they fully capable of? Well, if you had something that was alive, I mean, you can't say because there was a allegedly a light that shone from its forehead and or at least the one creature so, I mean, who knows? Maybe it was. Maybe it is some kind of dinosaur remnant. The The big question was, where did it come from? Where was it? It apparently stayed local because no one else ever really saw it. And they ended up at the end of the whole saga. They chased it into a mine shaft. And I think there might have been, or they at least suspected there was more than one. And they chased it in the mine shaft. And it never came out. I can't remember if they sealed it or not. I'm getting sketchy on the details now. Shame on me. But it was still, I mean, there was still conjecture. Is it still out there? Have people seen it? I mean, and if no one saw it before, does that mean that, I mean, lots of things are out there. I mean, we have rattlesnakes in Iowa. There are native Iowans that argue with me over that. It's like, guys, they're out there. I've seen them. It's confirmed. You go and talk to herpetologists and they'll tell you. Yes, they're there, but they're rare. They don't like people. They don't want to be your friend. They don't want to crawl around you, so they hide. So, I mean, granted, something like the Van Meter Visitor is a hell of a lot bigger than a rattlesnake, but still, if something decided to hide out there, and if it was cunning enough or smart enough to stay away from people, why not? So, quick aside about cryptids. So, in... My neck of the woods, uh, I live in Clinton County, Iowa. It's on the east side of the state. 
and we butt right up against the Mississippi River. Well, a few years back, a co-worker of mine swore up and down. He saw a mountain lion. I saw it. I saw the tail. I know what it looks like. It was right here. It jumped up on this thing. I saw it plain as day. And we're like, he didn't have the best eyesight in the world. And we gave him unmerciful hell over that. We I'm made sure. fun of him. And oh, yeah, it was off because it's like we don't have mountain lions around here. Then. Well, funny you say that because, I mean, as you know, oh, as yeah. a listener of Monsters Mongers podcast, there's a phenomenon in the United States, especially right now called in England, I guess, too called ABCs, Alien Big yep. Cats. And when I was a child, I was with my father going to New Paltz, New York. It's a little small hamlet. It's a little hippie town, basically. And right. we were going to a dive shop out in the like boonies of it, the woods of it. And we were on our way leaving the dive shop. My dad had to pick up some equipment or whatever. And we were driving out of the road, the dive shop's on, and we saw something going to the bushes. And my dad sweared his whole life until he died in 2017 that it was a mountain lion's tail. And he called, he called the wildlife organization, whatever the hell they're called. And they said, like, they said, we're not supposed to say anything, but yes, the government has been releasing big cats back into their natural environments for a long time now to try to reduce them. Yeah. Animals. Yeah. I've heard which, that rumor, which mountain lion, I mean, and now it's basically confirmed because the government admitted it. Like I think Derek said like five, six years ago, the government admitted it finally. Right. But, but I mean, New York, Mountain lions were killed off in New York during colonial times, supposedly. Like, oh, yeah. It's, it's, a lot of times. A lot, but yeah, I mean, because, you know, men are stupid and shoot things they don't understand. And when they could just stay out of the freaking area that the creature resides in, it'd be, everything would be fine. But we're human. We do, we err, and we're not the brightest. So, you know, it is what it is. But, I mean, so I have my own personal experience with seeing this, and I, I remember as, still to this day, I remember seeing it, but... And it looked like a it looked like a lion's tail. That's why I never remembered it looked like a lion's tail going into the bushes. And my dad saw more of it because he was paying attention to the road, of course, because he was driving. And I was just a kid, probably known me, probably reading a book in the front seat until my dad got my attention. But right. because I was always a reader and I always had a book with me in every car ride just to read, didn't have something to do. So I mean, I've seen an alien big cat, so I believe they could exist. But I do want I do want to say, going back to Vemir Visitor for a minute, in a world where Macaulay Mbembe lives in Africa, a brontosaurus, and has been seen by natives since hundreds of years ago, which means it's breeding, apparently, because dinosaurs don't live that long, as far as we know. And in a world where a tribe in Peru, I believe it is, or Argentina, I think it's Peru, a tribe in Peru worships these velociraptor-like creatures that live in the forest outside their village. Right. And in a world where thunderbirds, in the United States especially, have been seen since the American times, and gee, what would make a loud noise like thunder in my in everything I've ever seen? It had to be a pterodactyl type creature. And I've had people tell me, I've had a paranormal investigator, Lon Strickler out of Pennsylvania, tell mm-hmm. me of phantoms and monsters, tell me that he has seen he's gotten reports of dragons coming out of mines in Pennsylvania. Right. Or being seen around mines. So I mean, there's the whole theory of hollow earth and all that and all these cave systems that connect the United States. Sure. So living dinosaurs, you know, every time we do the every time we do my conspiracies bracket on a different show or whatever, that's always the conspiracy that gets my vote because it's just like they have to I mean, to think that if these creatures existed at one point, which we know they did, there's enough fossil evidence. Right. What would make you think they all went extinct? What would make you think that some of them didn't find places to hide? Or places to just stay to avoid the rapture of their species. I mean, sure. we don't know what's in Antarctica, for God's sake. It could be a savage land type area. Who the hell knows? Like, it could be right. a tropical. It could be a tropical jungle to go to Antarctica. We wouldn't know. The normal humans are allowed to go there. So, it's just. I mean, their government's hiding up stuff. Always. That's always every paranormal podcast or every paranormal believer's thing is the government is hiding something. And if there's dinosaurs that existed and the government knew about it. Why would they tell us? They didn't tell us about UFOs until 2019 when they had no choice. So, or sure. 2020. But still, I mean, and they knew about them for what, 70 years before that, at least? At least. Oh, yeah. Quite a while. I'm pretty, I'm pretty sure the Vatican has books and books on it going back all through time, but we'll never know that until the zombie apocalypse happens. And even then, <laughs> even then, I feel like it's going to be hard to get in the Vatican. <laughs> but I'm pretty, sure, I'm pretty sure they're going to have the sniper sitting on top. Like when you're 100 yards away, you're gone. But I mean, yeah, who could knows? be. So, I mean, 
that's the van meter visitor is always interesting to me as well. It's one of my favorite anything to do with living dinosaurs is one of my favorite crypto topics. And so that's the right in the book there. Like that's always been right out the book. Like crypto stories I believe in. Van meter visitor. Yep, right there on chapter three. <laughs> but yeah. So I mean it's an I, interesting I, story, that's for sure. All right. Well, I got one last crypto question, then I think we're gonna wrap this up. But sure. As have you heard of any reports of my other favorite cryptid, dogmen in Iowa? None. However, however, so I haven't heard of any in Iowa. However, we only live about five hours away from the Beast Wisconsin. of the Road. Wisconsin, and yeah. actually, a couple months ago, I went up there. I drove the the length of Bray Road, and I I tell you, it's actually kind of cool. And you could I could see how it would if I was running along that road at night. And there was something rustling through the cornfield at me, and it didn't sound or feel like a deer. I there's not a lot of places to go out there. You're still quite a ways from the nearest town. That is that could not be a comfortable feeling. I, yeah. I am fascinated by the Beast of Bray Road. The Beast of Bray Road, and then not far from it, the Beast of the Land Between the Lakes. Yep. Yep. Which I mean, the fact that those two most famous dog men encounters are right close to each other, kind of, it just kind of gives you the willies. I mean, it does. Because to think about, I mean, I have two mastiffs. And to think right. about seeing, to think about one of them bringing their hind legs coming after me is oh, a yeah. whole nother fear of God knows proportion. And I don't think you'll ever get over that because right. I mean, we've, we've heard about werewolves since we were kids and every sci-fi movie ever and or every every monster movie ever there's always a werewolf type element to it it's just like yes dogmen are from werewolves because they exist full time supposedly they don't come out just on a full moon which right. is even cre it's even creepier and i first i mean the nadp i'm sure you know what that is because you're mm -hmm. in, into this world and i mean the net the north american dogmen patrol something like that i i always mm. forget what it's called but they have a website with all these sightings of dogmen across America, and there are so many red dots in that map. My famous saying is, even if 5% of them, 10% of them are true, and the rest are just made-up stories, that's still a lot of evidence that something is out there that we don't understand fully. Right. Which, to me, just is a whole other thing where it's just like, okay, I don't understand this. And I don't it – it scares me because, I mean – Yes, I'm up in Massachusetts. I don't think there's going to be a dog jumping out of the woods at me anytime soon. I don't live in that highly wooden of an area, but right. I've been in Maine. I've been up to Maine. I've been to New Hampshire at night, and some of those roads are dark and desolate and nothing but forest. And you just, what could be out there that we can't see? Like that's oh sure. What can see, what can see us that we can't see? That's the scariest right. part. Is oh yeah. Be, I mean, even in my backyard, night like. By all technicality, there could easily be a Bigfoot because I'm I'm not far from Lemster State Forest in Massachusetts, which is a Bigfoot hotspot. Mm. So I'm 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 10, 15 minutes by car from there. So walking distance for a Bigfoot, maybe a day or two, maybe not even. Right. So I mean, I'm taking my dogs out, and I I always look in the woods because I'm like, who knows what's going to come out of these woods? They're not that deep, but they're deep enough. They're deep enough where you it takes you a, a good. I never walk to the other side of the woods my behind my house because it's all swampy and I don't want to walk through it. But it's just right. who know? I mean, may, maybe it would take me half hour, forty five minutes to walk through it quickly to the next road, maybe. But that's enough space that something could be hanging out back there for a little while before it moves on. Who knows? Oh, sure, absolutely. And I mean, we hear stuff outside when we're. I mean, it could be in it's Massachusetts. It could be a coyote. It could be Fisher cats. Could be anything. Could be a sure. bear. I mean, we have bears around here too. When right. supposedly the guy, supposedly the guy who built this house put a bird feeder in his backyard just to see the bear come up and try to knock it down. So, who knows? I mean, there could be. Yeah, we've heard things in our yard and things that sound big. So, I mean, I don't know. Could it be a bigfoot? Possibilities are endless in my mind. I'm not going to go out and find out. Oh God, no! I, <laughs> I, I, I like before, my big feet at a distance. Thanks. Before I had my dogs, I was always hesitant to go outside my yard at night because I didn't know what the hell was out there. I mean, sure. having two big, having two hundred. Over 100 pound mastiffs by my side really kind of relieve some fear, but right. if they come to try to stack me, they're going to be taking it down at least some degree, at least at least enough for me to escape, if anything. But I mean, still, I mean, I would 
easily try to save my dogs. I would, I would try to save my dogs, people. I'm not going to say I'm not going to let my dogs die so I can escape. I will try to save my dogs. Don't get me wrong. I right. love my damn dogs. But just don't want people coming at me like, you would get your dogs to die? You're like, no, I wouldn't. But, <laughs> uh, but I mean, it's just the, the, the moral of this story, kids, is you never know what's in these woods watching you, but you can't see it. And that's the bottom line. And that's why the paranormal world exists because there's too many experiences of people that have seen it and they don't want to see it. And they still to this day regret seeing it because they have nightmares over it. I've heard enough stories. So sure. But I, at this point, I'm going to let John tell people where they can find his books, where they can find him. Just promote yourself to the fullest. Uh, you can find me on Amazon. You can find all my books on Amazon and you can find my podcast on Apple, iTunes, Spotify, and wherever you listen to great podcasts. Which is not Spotify for my podcast right now. Just let everybody know. <laughs> but I will be back on Spotify and all the podcasts are soon. And if you don't know where else to find me, just check the outro that I put in the podcast episode and you can find me there. Or just follow my page if you're watching this video. And wherever you're watching this video, you'll see my stuff posted there. I haven't posted anything on either show in about a week because it's just been a hate switching over freaking hosts. I really do. But soon enough, folks, you'll see my episodes again. And you can always go to Ink. You can always look, just Google me. I'm sure they're out there somewhere on either on Spotify podcast or somewhere. I'm sure they're out there. You can listen to them. But, and hopefully by the end of this week, I'll have it all straightened out, folks, and you'll be able to listen. But until then, I want to thank John for coming on. It's been an amazing show. And we got to talk Thanks Iowa Cryptids, which I'm going to go brag to all the bastards. I got to talk Iowa Cryptids with somebody who actually knows what the freak they're talking about, finally. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> Bragging rights. Finally. But. Ah. But I want to thank all my watchers for watching, whoever watched this in replay, and all listeners in the future, please enjoy, and make sure you like and subscribe wherever you're listening or watching. It really helps the cause. And please check out all John's books. They sound interesting. I want to check them out, because, I mean, who doesn't like hearing interesting stories about history? I mean, I, I mean, okay, well, I ace history for years, so I like history, but I know some people, some people don't, but <laughs> you used to have a good enough history teacher then. That's the lesson here. But until next time, I've been your host as always, and I'll see you guys in a couple of days for another interview, I'm pretty sure. Have a good one. You can find me on Facebook as Jeremy Bryant, or you can find me as Uncensored, Unapologetic, and Untamed UQ Podcast Collective group, Facebook group. You can find me on Twitter and the Instagram as at JuggaloBastard, or should I say X now? And you can find me on TikTok as at Podcast. You can also find me on YouTube as Paranormal New Normal, and you can also find me streaming on YouTube as Blind Knowledge Network, because all knowledge is blind until they admit Bigfoot exists.